sermon scripture comes from Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answered, say, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And they could not pay. He canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pika. Um, good morning. Uh, welcome to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here, and it is a, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you for... Um, joining us this morning for worship. <clears throat> this spring semester, we are uh, journeying through the book of Luke. We're calling our study in the book of Luke, uh, Meeting Jesus. We're looking at these encounters with Jesus that people had. We're looking at the stories, the parables that Jesus told. And we're trying to see him. We're trying to know him. We're trying to uh, adore him more than we currently do. So if you're visiting and you're uh, in, uh, exploring the things of Jesus and you've got lots of questions about Jesus and the church, we promise you no answers, but we promise to give you Jesus. And if you've been here uh, every Sunday for the last 10 years and you are a lifelong uh, Christ follower, um, you probably have lots of questions too. Uh, and we promise you no answers, but we promise to give you Jesus that we would encounter in fresh ways uh, the living, resurrected Jesus. And there's no better way to do that than through his word, through uh, scripture, through uh, how he has chosen to reveal himself. So we're walking through the book of Luke, hoping to get many more fresh encounters with him. And this story today is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. You're not supposed to have favorite parts of scripture, I guess, but I do. Uh, this is great. It's unbelievable. I've, I've taught on this many times, I've read it many times, and it, it uh, seems to get more color every time um, I spend time in it. So uh, what you need to know, leading up to a, a brief recap of it, is that Luke, the author of this book, 
he tells the reader in Luke chapter 1 why he wrote the book, and he makes sure that they know. He says, hey, I'm a doctor. I'm great with details. And I need you to know, I did all the research possible to present to you a, a, an account of who Jesus of Nazareth was. And you can know that I talked to all the eyewitnesses, and I got every possible angle on this. And so every word of this document that I'm producing for you has been tested and retested and researched and interviewed. And so that comes out in his stories there's so much detail. Like he, he wasn't an eyewitness. He, he admits that, but he interviewed everybody at this dinner party is what it feels like. Cause he's got details in this that he wants nobody to miss. And he, he talked to the people at this banquet to say, tell me exactly what happened that night. And I want to get it from everybody's point of view so that I can tell this story. And, and I don't want the reader of this story to miss anything. There's a lot that pops off the page. There's a lot of elements and Luke, with precision, is, is saying, yeah, and I want you to get a full picture of what happened. So, Jesus, becoming this well-known teacher, he's actually called teacher in this passage for the first time uh, in the book of Luke. Teacher would have been the equivalent to rabbi, and so Jesus is referred to as a rabbi, which doesn't just happen. You don't just call people rabbis unless they were actually walking around teaching like rabbis and having followings like rabbis. And so he's called teacher. Famous rabbis, notorious rabbis who had followings were brought into these dinner banquets. They were brought in as guests of honor at these dinner banquets, teachers and philosophers. And these banquets weren't small, little, intimate dinner parties. They were, they were theaters. People on the streets could look in through the open air windows and there was a ton of people in the courtyard of Simon's house for this banquet because eventually the night would turn into discourse. Let us ask the great teacher questions. Let us bounce uh, Socratic questions off of him and see how the philosopher responds. And, and there's, this, there's this scene that's taking place and it was entertainment. People would gather from all over the village to come and watch this scene happen. And inside the courtyard, it, w- it, was, it was huge that there were lots of servants running around serving wine and making sure the guests felt at home. And then there was even another layer of guests who weren't on the guest list, but they were brought in by the host. And they would sit around the outside wall of the banquet table, of the courtyard, where all this hustle and bustle was happening. And they were the bottom barrel of society. They were brought in to not just not watch the dinner party and engage with discourse and philosophical questions. They were there to make the host look really good. Because here's what would happen. The host at the end of the night, he would have all these bottom level people of society, the lowest rung on the ladder. He would have them circling the banquet table and standing there, not speaking to anyone. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. You're not here for any other reason than at the end of the night, you guys can feast on the scraps that we leave over. And that will make me as the host look generous because look at what I've done. I've brought all of these low-level um, people from the village to come in and feast on my scraps. And so you can stand there, but you do not make a scene. You do not draw any attention to yourself. You were there to boost the reputation of the host. One of these women is there, standing against the wall. Sinful woman of the city, we're told. She interrupts the party as the party's beginning. This, this is like opening kickoff moment. It's like she, she knows all eyes are on this moment because the banquet's about to be toasted and begun. And she busts in while everybody's watching steps out of her expected place on the wall and begins to lavish adoration and affection on the guest of honor. Everybody's watching the guest of honor. Everybody, all eyes are on the guest of honor because he's, he's been brought in to serve a purpose for the discourse of the evening. And she's weeping as she washes his feet. She breaks this 
jar, this alabaster jar, an expensive jar of perfume over his feet, and she lets down her hair, and her tears become the water needed to wash Jesus' feet. This isn't like she got choked up a little bit, and you could see the glisten of tears in her eyes. This is like ugly cry. This is like waterworks is going on. Like she cannot contain the amount of emotion and, and, and expression of that emotion that she's feeling. Well, this interruption is not only unexpected because she's supposed to stay against the wall until the end of the night, it's offensive to Simon the host. She is ruining his dinner party. Stay in your place, woman. You have been brought here to boost my ego and my reputation, not to cause a scene. And Jesus, the guest of honor, not only lets this interruption happen as the party is beginning, Jesus takes the scene that's going down and he draws more attention to it. He actually makes the scene that happens part of his discourse. Like he doesn't deny it, he doesn't tell her to, to, to step away and that we'll talk after the party. He actually uses it for the very reason why he was there, which was to begin a, a conversation and to do a teaching and to have a dialogue He's making this interruption the center part of his teaching. And not only that, he's embarrassing the host by letting this happen. He doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't say, hey guys, I'm sorry, this is so embarrassing. Give me a few minutes to handle this little business outside and we'll come back and we'll continue on. No, he's actually shifting the focus to the chagrin of Simon the Pharisee, the host, to make this the moment that everybody sees and everybody remembers. That's the scene. There's two people, there's two main characters, not including Jesus. Jesus is always the main character. He's always the right answer. But there's two main uh, characters in front of us. The woman, sinful woman, and Simon the Pharisee. Two different encounters with Jesus at the same time. So we're going to follow these characters. We're going to see how their experience with Jesus played out at this banquet, at this dinner table. And we're going to see why in the world did Jesus let this banquet play out the way that it did. So first, let's talk about this sinful woman. Most likely a prostitute, and most likely a successful prostitute because uh, she had this alabaster jar of perfume that may or may not have been used in her trade to, to woo customers off the streets, but an alabaster jar of, of perfume was about a year's wages. So she's done well, enough to buy this alabaster jar, she shatters this jar at the feet of Jesus and she begins weeping and washing his feet with her undone hair. It's, it's really helpful for us to get into our biblical imaginations and go to the scene, like get in the banquet room in the courtyard and imagining all these guests of honor reclining at a table with their feet facing out and them sitting kind of face forward at this table and behind the guest of honor is this woman, this intimate experience this, this impassioned moment is happening for everybody to see. And the first thing that any first century person who was there or who read about it after Luke recorded it, the first thing that they would have noticed is the absolute wild abandon that this woman showed. Like the courage that it took for her to do this. Because this was a no-no. Like you sit on the wall where you are placed and you don't speak, you don't draw any attention to yourself. In fact, that's the complete opposite of what we need you to do. You need to just be there as a number so that when the meal is over and everybody's leaving and they've forgotten about the meal, people will maybe turn around and see a bunch of vultures eating the, the scraps and then we'll feel good about the host. Like know your role, woman. Stay where you're supposed to be. But she doesn't seem to care. She doesn't seem to have any problem busting open the opening of this uh, banquet, the, the kickoff moment, by drawing all attention to herself. 
So the question is, do you think she needed like a pep talk, like Rocky Balboa before the big fight, like you can do this, sinful woman, we, we know you've got this, or do you think that wasn't even on her radar, that she knew Jesus was at this party, and as a lower level member of society, she knew she could go sit on the wall, and she knew she would have direct access to this person who she was dying to see? Like was anybody having to talk her into this? Or is this possibly what freedom looks like? Is this possibly what wild abandon, what deep affection looks like? Like, What in the world happened to this woman that she would do something so risky for her life, potentially so risque as everyone's watching it? Like, They know who she is. They know what she does. That she, at a dinner party, would, would, would make such a scene at a party that she wasn't even on the guest list for. Like, this was a bad story. This, this is not going to go well for you if you are going to roll these dice and see how this goes. And she doesn't even seem to care about what this might cost her. And the first thing um, you may be thinking when you hear that this woman, this sinful woman of the city, is crying at the feet of Jesus, you begin to... Um, the, the assumption is made, at least historically as I've read this story and even taught on this story, that um, her tears were tears of remorse. Like that she's there and she's got all this regret, she's got all this guilt, and she's busting into this scene because her, her, her remorse is so heavy on her shoulders and her tears are an expression. But that's actually not the way that Luke writes the story. She's not crying tears of regret. She's not crying tears of guilt. Is it possible that her tears were tears of joy for the love that she had found? Jesus makes this really clear. His words are really important. Jesus says to the woman, the first thing he says to the woman, in fact, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, he doesn't actually speak to the woman until his very last line. The end of the story is the first time he speaks to her. And his first and only words to the woman are, your sins are forgiven. Now, you can read that on face value and think, well, she just got forgiveness at that moment. But grammatically speaking, your sins are forgiven is written in a Greek tense known as the perfect tense. The perfect tense is something that is used when talking about a past action that is affecting a present reality. And it's perfect. It's actually perfect in the sense that it's complete. It's a complete status. It's a complete action that has changed the status permanently. Nothing can affect a perfect tense uh, verb usage. Nothing can change what the perfect tense is communicating in the present. It's already been established in the past, and now the present is just an expression of that new reality. So in the perfect tense, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, meaning this forgiveness has already happened. And this timeline is important for us. It's a tense that is communicating a present reality because of a past instance. This woman knows she's forgiven before the party starts. Comes out in the parable that Jesus tells, which we'll talk about in a minute too, but this little parable that Jesus tells, when he begins to explain the punch of the parable, Jesus connects the parable where he says there's two debtors and one owed more than the other and the one that had the bigger debt forgiven is the one that has more love. He's connecting the parable to reality that's playing out in front of them. Like, let me explain this scene with a parable. And when he says the, the math equation of the parable is this, love of Jesus is directly connected to how much one knows themselves to have been forgiven by him. 
And then he says, hey, what's going on down there at my feet is love. Let me tell you where that love came from. What's going on at my feet is adoration. Let me tell you where that adoration came from. What's happening at my feet is affection. Let me tell you where that affection started. It started with her knowing she's forgiven. She wouldn't be able to do what she's doing, this extraordinary display of love. That love came from the fact that she knows she's forgiven. He's saying to her, he's saying to the room, her love is proof that she's already been forgiven. That's why he uses the perfect tense. One English translation brings out this, this meaning by translating this little line this way. Her sins, her many sins, must have already been forgiven her or she would not have been able to show so great a love. Her love is connected to the fact that she knows she's been forgiven by Jesus. The story is telling us that affection for Jesus is directly and proportionately tied to how much one knows themselves to have been forgiven by him. Love for Jesus cannot be manufactured. Love for Jesus cannot be manipulated. Love for Jesus certainly cannot be um, mustered up with some willpower. You are not able to just go Add to your love for Jesus by trying to love him more. This little story tells us that love for Jesus is directly related to how much one knows oneself to have had their debt canceled by him. And then get this, the more debt, the more cancellation. The more cancellation, the more love you'll have. So do you love Jesus? Let me ask you this way. Do you want to love Jesus more than you currently do? Luke 7 is very clear. There's only one way to do that. You have to know how big your debt is that has been canceled by him. You will not be able to love him any other way. She loved much because she had been forgiven much. The sinful woman entered the room a forgiven woman. And as a forgiven woman, she was a free woman. And as a free woman, she was a woman who was free to love. She was free to weep. She was free to express how she felt. She was free to let herself be captivated by the romance of the lover of her soul. She's not sitting in the, in the back room before this moment happens going, okay, well, I wanna go out there. How, let me get the, 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 the liquid in my eyes to make it seem like I'm, I'm doing more and that I love him more. She can't contain the mercy she's found and it just expresses itself in deep love. But deep love for Jesus is automatically, biblically speaking, it is only connected to deep forgiveness. It's the only way you can love Jesus more is deeper forgiveness. We don't know how she knew her forgiveness or what her previous interactions were with Jesus, but Jesus is very clear here. She knew her debt, and she knew who she was in debt to, and she knew how her debtor handled people that owed him much. Simon was there to give the woman scraps from his table, and Jesus is there to serve her a feast. Like, hey, Simon, I know you're saving kind of the stuff at the end for her. I, I'm, I'm telling you, she, she's got all of me. Like, I'm not saving the end scraps for her. I'm, I'm bringing her as the guest of honor to my table where all debts are canceled. So for us, what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean that our debt has been canceled? Truly, if you're in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, what does it mean that your debt has been canceled? 
In fact, the gospel, according to the Bible, goes even one step further than saying your debt has just been canceled. It doesn't stop at cancellation. The gospel says that our debt hasn't just been canceled, it's been paid, paid in full. So that it means now, if you belong to Jesus, God treats you like you owe him nothing. Because the debt's been paid. And so if the debt has truly been paid to the degree that Jesus is saying it has been paid, then Jesus has, has, has wiped away any, any of the outstanding debt that stood there and paid it off in full, and God does not send debt collectors to collect on debt that's already been paid for. And so your relationship to God is one where he treats you like you owe him nothing. Let me go a little bit farther. He expects nothing from you. Do you know how not used to that we are? Do you know how little human experience we have of being in relationship with people who treat us like we don't owe them anything? The best marriages in the world, the best friendships in the world, the best roommate situations in the world, that there is always this sense, there is always this underlying hum that maybe, just maybe the other person, yeah, yeah, I know that like they say they love me, I know that they say that we're good, I know they actually said they forgave me for what I've done to them, but there's a little twinge that makes me want to believe, yeah, but they still are holding it over me. They're gonna use this against me one day. It's been used against me before, and so here's what this woman is experiencing. Think about this experience for this woman in relationship to her past. She's never met a man who doesn't deal with debts for her. Her whole life was what she owed men, and now she's coming to a man who's saying, yeah, actually, you, you owe me more than you owed any of those other men, and now I'm telling you, I'm not gonna call on them. It's so paid in full that, that some of our fear of being forgiven by Jesus, we still, the taunting arrows make us believe that one day, it's cool that I'm forgiven now, but what if this comes to haunt me one day? It's cool that the debt's been canceled today, but what about in the future if God were to seem to change his mind? I know he's canceled the debt, I know that's cool, but a debt that's been paid means that no debt collector can ever call on it ever again. The Lord treats you as if you owe him nothing. Those are the terms that's your Jesus. He doesn't call on debt that's already been paid. And that's what sparks the flood for this woman. It is a love she has not known anywhere else. And the great lover of her soul had set her free. So that's the woman. And now the main character. <laughs> she is a main character, but the main character is not her. She's actually not even spoken to until the final verse from Jesus. There's like nine other verses of Jesus speaking. He doesn't even address her. After the whole episode happens, right? So go there in your imaginations in this courtyard with this huge banquet table, all these guests lying around the table, the guest of honor. And when the night is about to begin, the guest of honor is interrupted by this sinful woman from the wall who's not supposed to be saying anything. And all this is happening. Everybody's watching. Everybody sees this. This is what just happened. Do you know Jesus' first words? Imagine this. His feet are being washed. Jesus' first words. He reads Simon's mind. And then in verse 40, he says this. Simon, I have something to say to you. Wait, wait, no, Jesus. There's a prostitute washing your feet. Don't you want to talk about that for a second? Don't you want to acknowledge what's going on at your feet right now? He He doesn't even mention it. He doesn't even let the people know that he knows what's going on. This is happening and all eyes are on him and what does he do? He looks across the room and says, Simon, I want to say something to you. (laughs) Like record scratch moment. No, I'm sorry, Jesus. You have someone at your feet right now. You might want to deal with that before you talk to me. Jesus just lets it ride. 
The whole interaction is focused on Simon. Jesus doesn't even speak to the woman till his final verse. Even when he turns to face the woman for the first time, verse 44, he turns to face the woman. Do you hear what it says, verse 44? Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. Like even when he's looking at her, he's talking to Simon. His, his, his gaze, his, his attention is on Simon. It's not on the woman. And when he speaks to Simon, he tells this little parable. It's one of his shortest in all of Scripture. But here's what's interesting. Again, at, on a Greek grammar level, they do things, or they did things a little bit differently when recording ancient texts. That um, it's called a chiasm. You don't need to know that. It's not going to be on the test. That's been canceled. You're good. But here's the here, here's what here's what a chiasm is. Okay. Here's the chiasm. Chiasm is the way that an author or a storyteller would use details before and details after to draw all the attention to the middle. And so the middle, not in every passage, but if the chiasm structure is there, then the attention of the reader is meant to be drawn to the middle of the story. The chiasm in this passage, the chiastic structure here, is pointing us to the dead center. What's at the dead center? This parable. The parable is the grammatical focus of the entire passage. Everything hinges on this parable. This is the climactic moment. And here's why it's so powerful. This is why Jesus is such a good teacher. He uses this little two-sentence parable to explain the scene. He's saying, hey, I know this crazy thing's happening right now, and y'all got a bunch of questions. Let me explain to you what's happening right now. I'm going to explain it with a parable. I'm going to teach it to you, and you're going to see it. He was way ahead of his time in terms of teaching visible learners and audible learners. He's doing it all at the same time. He goes, I know you're watching this and you're, you're confused. Let me explain it with a parable. And the parable is meant to overlay reality so that you can see what's going on. And here's the parable. One of Jesus' shortest, this rabbi, master teacher. Two people were in debt to the same debtor. One owed the debtor two years' wages. The other owed the debtor two months' wages. Those are the numbers there. And the moneylender decided graciously to cancel both debts. Which one will love the debtor more? And so Jesus tells this parable to, I mean, there's two debtors. Who are the two debtors, Jesus? <laughs> like, this is meant to explain what's going on. Well, we got Simon, who you just called out. we got the woman. So two debtors, one of them has deep affection. One of them hates people. One of them is in love. One of them is showing adoration. The other one, not so much. And so he turns to Simon to have him like swallows on medicine. Which one is going to be more full of love, Simon? Well, the answer is obvious, but it's, 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 it's as if Jesus is looking at Simon and saying, hey, Simon, uh, what this woman's doing right now is called love. What this woman is doing right now is called affection. And let me tell you where that came from. It came because her debt had been canceled. It came because her massive debt was wiped away. Simon, where's your love? Simon, can we talk about why you don't love me or people? Can we talk about your lack of love and lack of affection? Do you want to know where that comes from, Simon? You will not have love, Simon, because you are unwilling to acknowledge the debt that you owe. Where is your love, Simon? Your love and your affection, Simon, is suffocating in the death grip of how little you think you owe. That's what's killing your affection, Simon. 
Gary Anderson is a uh, Notre Dame professor of Old Testament theology. He wrote a book several years ago on sin. It's profound. But many people like to think that like Jesus and Christianity invented the idea of sin as debt. Like that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an oppressive theology of Christianity and we invented that to oppress people's souls that no one ever talked, talked like that until the Christians showed up. Well, Gary Anderson in his book on sin debunks all that. It's, it's not a new idea. It's not a new idea. Christianity didn't invent it. In fact, it's all over the Old Testament. And it actually, sin as debt became the primary image for synonyms. It became the primary, debt as sin became the primary illustration that rabbis used for like the last 500 years before Jesus showed up. Every, every good Jewish person in the age of Jesus would have obviously known it was so regular nomenclature. When someone's talking about debt, they're talking about sin. In fact, the Aramaic word, Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke, Greek is what it was written in. In the Aramaic language, the word for debt is the same word for sin. They were complete synonyms, hoba. And so when a first century person hears Jesus talking about hoba, that there were two debts to a debtor, everyone in the room knows that Jesus is talking about sin. Everybody. No one's confused about that. So the translation is, hey, Simon, you're the one who thinks they have a small debt. Hey, Simon, you're the one who thinks they have a small sin problem. And we gotta talk about that. Jesus here in the parable is saying the pathway to loving Jesus more is acknowledging the debt that you owe. Because when you acknowledge your massive debt, you will hear the declaration that the debt has been graciously canceled and paid for. And Simon's refusal to believe that he needed forgiveness as much as this woman, please don't miss this, is the problem in the room. Simon's refusal to admit that he doesn't have as much debt as the woman is what Jesus is going after here. Please, please, please do not miss this. This is the big idea on the table. This is the thesis of the whole interaction. What sin is Jesus focused on in this entire story? It's not that he's not calling what the woman did a a sin, her past life. He calls her a sinful woman. He says her sin, which was great, has been forgiven her. He's not dismissing her sin. But what, what sin does Jesus spend 10 verses talking about? Not hers. He spends all of his energy and effort talking about Simon's sin. And Simon refuses to believe it. This whole interaction is about Jesus getting to the heart of Simon's smug self-righteousness. That's part of the punch that Luke wants us to feel. Jesus, everybody knows this woman's a prostitute. Everybody knows she's a sinful woman of the city. Her reputation precedes her, and Jesus doesn't talk to her till the very end because he's not focused on her and her sin. He's focused on Simon and his sin. In fact, he's so committed to Simon realizing the sin debt that he's in that he actually exposes Simon's sin in real time. He does it three times. He doesn't bring up Simon's previous 20 years and the thing he did when he was in high school. He's saying, hey Simon, you're so blind to your sin problem. You're so blind to you not thinking you have a debt. Let me expose some debt right now. There were these Jewish customs of hospitality that rabbis and religious leaders would have called sin. And Simon doesn't do any of them. That's why Jesus goes through the list. He goes, hey Simon, didn't wash my feet when I came in, debt number one. Didn't kiss me when I walked in the room and I'm the guest of honor, sin number two. Didn't wash my feet at all. Didn't even have water available 
to wash my feet. Sin number three. Hey, Simon, I'm just trying to wake you up to the fact that you think you have no debt. Let's talk about the debt that you just incurred when I walked in here. I'm not holding that over you. I've already, I've already like, told you. I don't have any problem forgiving sin. Look at this woman. I'm scared for you, Simon, that you are living in this fantasy world and not reality of believing that your debt is not as great as hers. Jesus is focused on Simon. Simon, you have debt. Simon, you have a sin problem. Jesus masterfully turns Simon's own words against him. Do you, did you hear Simon's first words? He's like said them to himself, which is terrifying to think that Jesus is listening to all those things too. But he says to himself, if this guy were you know, a true prophet, he wouldn't be doing that because she's a sinful woman. Translation, um, real prophets, real religious people, don't hang out with sinners. And then Jesus goes on to expose Simon's sin as if to say to him, hey Simon, if I was gonna avoid sinners, I would have had to start with you. That you've got just as much debt going on, but that's not who I am. I'm here at your party. But your refusal to admit the debt that you have, your commitment to not owning up to the debt that you do have is a problem. The attention Jesus gives in this whole interaction is all to Simon. Why? Because in the eyes of Jesus, Simon has the bigger issue. In the eyes of Jesus, Simon's sin is more offensive than the sin of this prostitute. Please let that sink in. Jesus is more offended by your self-righteousness than he is by the sin of a prostitute. That's why he's going right after Simon for 10 verses, and he only talks to the woman once. What does this passage show us about the sin that Jesus is focused on? Scary, but Jesus is going after the sin that's hidden, it's going after the sin that's subtle, and it's going after the sin that people usually don't think they are committing, and it's definitely going after the sin that you don't think you need to repent of. Like how many of you this past week have repented over your self-righteousness? Let me ask it this way. What sin do you think Jesus is after in your life? I can promise you, according to Luke 7, it's not the one you feel the most guilty about. The one that Jesus wants to kill in your life is not the one that you're trying really hard to get better at. The sin that Jesus is going after in your life is not the one that you spend your time thinking about, and it's not the one that you are comfortable confessing to your friends and your community. Jesus is going after the sin of self-righteousness. And the scarier question is this. How self-righteous are we? Because if it's the more offensive sin, and Jesus shows that by he, how he handles this dinner party interruption, we should maybe want to ask the question, but it might be scary. I've shared this with you before, but I'm kind of tired of the fact that whatever I'm teaching on, Jesus seems uh, to make me want to live through it in order to teach about it. So I'm never going to preach about death. Um, <laughs> but, but it's like, it's, it's, it's a severe mercy that he would say, I will not let you get up and teach my people until you live through it yourself. You will not teach to them. You will teach to yourself and they can join you. My idea of who the bigger sinner is in my world was on display all week. My Simonness came out all week. So I'm ready for this week to be over. But could you, could you, would, would you risk asking Jesus to show you in your life where you think other people owe him more than you do? Would you ask Jesus to show you where you don't think your sin is as heinous or offensive as other people's? 
Would you ask Jesus to show you how committed you are to the idea that you will owe Jesus nothing at the end of the day? It's everywhere in your life. I build my life on being Simon. Because there's no better way to keep my ego intact. There's no better way to keep people from hurting me. There's no better way to feel great about myself than to believe that other people have more debt to Jesus than I do. So how would we know this? What are, the, what are the indicators of Simon in our life? We can look at my week, but Simon's an easier target, so we're gonna talk about him for a minute. <laughs> How about this one? And Simon does this <laughs> in spades. What an idiot. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, when someone does something that hurts you, do you put it in your little ledger of their wrongdoings? Like Simon knows exactly who this woman is and she's not allowed to do anything that isn't seen by Simon through that lens. He knows she's a sinful woman and so this act is right in line with who she is. How would he know to do that if he wasn't keeping a record of all the sinners in town? That this woman is known notoriously for her sin and now I'm only going to see you through that lens because I've been keeping track. This little book we keep of people's wrongs, and so we say things like this when we hear about people, what they've done or what they do to us, fits with, right with who they are, because that's who they are. And you wouldn't know it fits with right how who they are if you weren't keeping track of all the things that they had done. You wouldn't be able to only see them through that lens if you didn't have that lens to begin with because you've been keeping little records of all the wrongs they've been doing. Or how about this? This one's, this one's dark. When, when you're offended, when you're sinned against, when you're hurt, you think, I'll use this later. I mean, I'm not gonna call on it right now, but man, when the punches start getting thrown, I have a whole ledger to pull out. Oh, you wanna talk about sin, do you? Let me tell you all the things that I've been keeping track of that I haven't told you because I've been so merciful, <laughs> which apparently is gone now. But there's, there's this idea of, well, well I'm, I know that like, it's not right to maybe call it out when I see it, but I'll hold on to it. I've got it right here. One of the best ways to tell how self-righteous you are is to tell how easily and effortlessly critical you can be of other people. If you are a master of pointing out the shortcomings of others, it is a great indicator that you are Simon and you have not dealt with your own debt. Well, maybe you don't keep a record of wrongs, but maybe, my wife and I joke about this a lot um, (laughs) because it's too painful to actually acknowledge, we'll just laugh about it. But do you keep a record of not necessarily their wrongs, whoever they is, do you keep a record of your rights? Like the things you've done correct, your rightness? Simon criticizes Jesus by saying, well, if he were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, and he wouldn't let such a sinful person touch him. Let me translate that for you. Simon's not doing, or Simon is thinking, Jesus, you're not doing this the way that I would do it, and the way that I would do it is the right way to do it. I would kick her out, and I wouldn't let her touch me. Which means Simon thinks that the way he does things is always the right way to do things. Which means, in your mind, you're keeping a record of all the right ways you think you do things. And here's the way that that gets exposed. You ready for this one? This is painful. Um, When you're criticized by someone, spouse, child, coworker, boss, mom, dad, when you're criticized by someone, how, how quickly do you go to trying to bring out all the other right things you've done? Well, yeah, I know that I might have done that, but did you see all the other stuff I've been doing? 
Like, can I get a little credit for all the good stuff I've been doing too? That seems like an unfair assessment over there. You're only focusing on the wrong things. And so criticism has no value because of all the right things I've done. Well, how do you know about all the right things you've done if you haven't been keeping track of them and thinking, I'm gonna keep this one away for later so when the punches start throwing, then I can bring out all the good stuff I've done. Maybe um, you don't keep a record of wrongs or rights, but maybe you can relate to Simon on this one. How well do you handle your plans being interrupted? And like when the way you think a situation or a storyline or even an event the way you think something should be going down, when that gets interrupted and derailed, how well do you handle things not going the way that you intend them to? Because Simon's party was ruined. This is not what he had in mind. And the person who ruined his plans will face his wrath. He is not gonna have someone derailing the way he thinks this party should be going. How do you do when there is a threat to your plan? How do you do when the idea you have of how things should be going is thrown off? How do you handle that? Or how about this one? This one may be the most damning. Uh, How often do you release what I uh, have been uh, experiencing all week uh, is the sigh of disdain? Because that's exactly what Simon does when he sees the woman coming in. This little grumble, this little arrogant grumble. I can't believe you are the way that you are. Translation, the way that you are is worse than the way that I am. Nobody? Good, okay, so how about, how about, how about, how about last one, just in case? If you're not a sigh of disdainer, if you're not a record of rights or wrongs keepers, if you handle interruption perfectly, how about this one? This is the last one. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, okay? How about this one? As the story about Simon has been explained and unfolded and the picture has begun to be painted of the scene that's going on, do you in any way feel a little superior to Simon? Like, what an idiot. Simon, he doesn't get it. He doesn't know that Jesus forgives sinners. I do. Like, are you Simon towards Simon? Do you feel a little superior when you're able to see other people's shortcomings, even if their shortcoming is self-righteousness? Like, is it possible that you can see other people's self-righteousness because you've got it in spades? And you can see it in them because it's so well and alive in you? Do you get self-righteousness about how well you can see the ugliness of Simon's self-righteousness? Are you Simon towards Simon? Happens maritally. Man, I feel great when I see my wife's self-righteousness. I feel great about it. Oh man, she's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Happens politically. How how graciously do you talk about people that disagree with you politically? Do you feel like a little better than them because they're idiots? (laughs) It happens so effortlessly and it's part of the punch of this story is that Jesus knows how this story is being recorded. He knows who's on display. And there's all these options. There's all these moments. Simon feels smug about the woman, and he knows that the readers of this story are gonna have a wonderful opportunity to feel smug about Simon. And the point is this. All of this Simonness that's alive and well in us, all of it, Jesus is deeply offended by. He's more offended by Simon than he is the sin of this woman. Please do not miss that. It offends Jesus 
more deeply that we would think we don't have a debt as large as other people, that we would live that way and react this way. It's the sin that Jesus came to kill. That's why he spends, the, out of the 14 verses that were read, the only mention of this that he speaks, the only words he speaks to this woman aren't until the very end. The whole thing is about Simon. Because Jesus is coming after it with an axe. So is it possible, like would it be possible this morning, could, could, could this transformation take place where we go from being like Simon in the story to being like the woman in the story? Is that possible? In order to do that, the first thing we would have to do, according to Jesus and according to the parable, according to the whole story, the first thing we would have to do if we're gonna react in adoration and wild abandon towards Jesus, the first thing we would have to do is acknowledge our debt. And the first hardest part about acknowledging our debt is having to admit how often we love refusing to acknowledge our debt. It would have to be acknowledging the fact that my refusal of my acknowledgement of my debt incurs a much greater debt than anybody else. So here's, here's the, the, the gentle way to say this. If you're having a hard time thinking about the debt that you've incurred against Jesus, I just found your debt. Because <laughs> that is the debt. And it's way more offensive to Jesus than it is those of us who can recall our heinous sins from the last 24 hours. If you're having a hard time doing it, we found it. It's not hyperbole to say that Jesus is more offended by Simon than he is by this woman. It's the point of the story. But once we can acknowledge our debt that we owe, there's a woman here who would love to tell you about your debtor. There's a woman here who would love to tell you about the one to whom you owe your debt and how he treats those that owe him. But if you can't acknowledge that you owe him, you will never hear mercy. Remember the fact that at the end of this story, Jesus tells this woman, your sins are forgiven. And remember we talked about, he's using the perfect tense, he's acknowledging a past reality, a past experience that, that explains and builds the present moment. The question is, why is Jesus stating something to her, your sins are already forgiven? Why is he restating something that's already true? Why is he telling this woman she's forgiven if she's already been forgiven? Why is he telling her again about her forgiveness? It's because the one who has both canceled and paid for your debt is also the one that never tires of telling you about it again and again and again. He came to set captives free, remember? So he said in Luke 4, that's what my mission is. I came to announce the year of the Lord's favor, and I will keep announcing it to you. This woman already knew she was forgiven. That's why she was there. And before she leaves, he wants to make sure she knows it again. And once we've had our debt canceled and paid for by Jesus, we're told here, here's what happens to people who have had their debt acknowledged and their debt pardoned by Jesus. They become wild and extravagant lovers of Jesus and people. And the opposite is also true. Like if Jesus just said, if you want to be a wild lover, you've got to start by acknowledging your debt. If you won't acknowledge your debt, you will be a bitter, angry person. You will not be able to love people. See, Simon 
disdains this woman. She's interrupting the party. She's a sinner. She's unclean. But his disdain of this woman is driven by his disdain of Jesus. And his disdain of Jesus is driven by the parable. What the parable says, he doesn't think he owes Jesus anything. He doesn't think he has sin to be forgiven. And so work that train backwards. If he can't love this woman, it's because he hates Jesus. And if he hates Jesus, it's because he doesn't think he owes Jesus anything. Now reverse that. If he knew how much he owed Jesus, and then he encountered the merciful, freely, freely forgiving, freely pardoning Jesus, he would not mind loving this woman. You want to be a wild lover of Jesus and people? You have to start with your debt. So Midtown, do you want to love with wild abandon? Do we want to be known in this city where people say Midtown is full of extravagant and generous lovers? Here's what Luke 7 says. We have to start with our own repentance. We must acknowledge our own dead and we must run to the feet of of the great lover of our souls. Let's pray. Jesus, we are the ones whom you have forgiven much and we long to love you much. And none of us uh, would even be here if if you weren't um, so extravagant in your mercy but the greatest blinder we have to that is our own self-righteousness, is our own arrogance. And so save us from ourselves, we pray. Do not let us leave here without acknowledging the debt that we owe, even if the debt is the sin of thinking we have none. May that burden weigh heavy on us, but may the burden drive us to your feet where you freely pardon debt. We've offended you, Jesus. And the people who we would love to judge and sit in judgment over, you won't let us. You love us too much to let us stay in that seat. And so please do that now. Lead us in acknowledging our debt. Lead us in running to you. And lead us in leaving here in joy, we pray. In your name, amen.